morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to be here today at Fort Worth Presbyterian Church. Okay, we're going. I'm going to pray. Oh, um, my name is Jacqueline Saunders. I'm a member of Fort Worth Pres. Um, and I see some faces I don't recognize, and I hope I get to meet you. All right, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law, and that you open our ears to hear. And Lord, I pray that we would be changed by the scripture. Um, we know that your word says that you change us from glory to glory into the image of your Son. We thank you, Father. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So I have a thing for dead kings. Um, I do. Uh, I was studied literature and history, um, particularly English. Like England is my thing. I'd go every year if I could. But I can't. Um, but in 2012, the Lord fulfilled a desire of my heart to go. Uh, I had prayed. I hadn't told anybody about it. And within a few weeks of me praying, God made a way for me to go where my ticket was paid. Um, it was awesome. And I was there for two weeks, but at the end, mostly not in London, but at the end I went to London because I am slowly working on a book that I may never finish, but I hope the Lord, you know, preserves my life that I can finish it. Um, it's about English martyrdom. That's what I studied in graduate school. So during the English reformations, when I say plural, because in the six, you know, we're about to mark 500 years since Martin Luther nailed his theses to the door in Wittenberg. And Luther came over, his, his work spread over to England. Uh, the response to that was often good. People were hungry for this, but so often that knowledge was suppressed. And so there were several different phases of English Reformation because it depended who was in charge. Were they disposed to Catholic thought? Were they disposed to Protestant thought? And many, many people lost their lives because they stood up for one position or another. And so um, I'm also really fascinated about how God uses people in power to ordain change. Some is good, some is bad. So when I was, I wanted to visit the Tower of England because that's where many martyrs were and I got to go. But on my last day, I went to Westminster Abbey. Lots of English kings and queens are buried there. Um, and there is a chapel behind the altar called the chapel of Edward the Confessor. And it is, it's about a story off the ground. You have to go up a staircase to get there and through a gate. And it's closed off to the public because it's old. Uh, Edward the Confessor died in 1066. That's what sparked off um, the wars that led to the French coming and becoming English kings. So he was, he's buried in the center of that chapel and he's surrounded by kings and queens. And it's fragile because we're talking like 900 years old. And the public used to just be able to tromp up there. <coughs> Sorry. Um, anyway, I, I stayed for Evensong that night. And I got to talking to one of the marshals and talked about my trip and my research. And he said, you come sit next to me in the choir for Evensong. And so I got to sit right next to the boys as they're singing. It was wonderful. And then I was asking him questions about the abbey. And I asked him about the chapel. And he said, did you get to go up there? Because you can ask to be taken. And I said, no. And he said, I'll have somebody take you after Evensong. 
So he did. I had to wait around, but somebody said, Martin, this is Jacqueline. Please take her to the chapel. And Martin said, the chapel is closed. We're closing the abbey. And he said, she's my friend. Take her up there. (laughs) So we go to the stairs. I go up the stairs. I thought he's following me. He didn't. So I go through the gate, and there I am by myself in this shrine, surrounded by dead kings and queens of England. It was impressive. But the fact is, these are all people who had been in power who lost their power. Power that God had allowed them to have, and when they died, it was gone. And so, in Isaiah 6, we begin with a dead king. It's this particular part of Isaiah. It's starting a new section, and there's a shift because you know Isaiah has been talking about the Israelites, and then he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Isaiah is the only prophet who dates parts of his ministry to a particular death. He tells us that in the year that King Uzziah died, he saw the sovereign Lord sitting on a throne, exalted, and lift it up. Before we consider Isaiah's vision, let's reflect for a moment on that first section of Isaiah. In the prefatory chapters of 1 through 5, we're given a context that tells us in no uncertain terms that the inhabitants of Jerusalem have brought evil on themselves, and they have rejected the law of the Lord and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. The Lord had looked for righteousness but he had found none. God's people, who he had set apart for himself, had rejected his known will. And chapter 5 ends with the word that darkness and distress are coming. Then there's that shift. King Uzziah dies. His death, Uzziah's death, provides an immediate context, uh, contrast excuse me, to what Isaiah sees in his vision. In Uzziah... There's a human and finite king who suffered greatly because of his pride and flouting God's ordinance. He had died after reigning for 52 years, but the last part of his reign was spent, and he was a leper. John Piper points out that in world leadership, there's a guaranteed 100% turnover of power. But with God, there is no alteration of his authority And this is part of what we get in Isaiah's testimony of his experience where he saw the Lord. It's an experience that few humans have ever had. He has a vision of the glory of God who is alive. When Isaiah sees the Lord, he has a vision of resplendence. God is high and lifted up, and his robes, which are emblems of his majesty, fill the temple. God is revered. He's surrounded by seraphim who cry out in praise. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. That which fills all the earth is his glory. And that's Alec Motier's translation of that verse. As Kathleen Nielsen mentions in the lesson for today, the repetition here expresses superlative. What is holiest of all? Alec Motier notes that it expresses the total truth about something. The holiness of the Lord is the only instance in the Old Testament of a superlative that requires threefold repetition. In considering God's holiness, Piper expresses it beautifully when he says that God's being and his character are utterly undetermined by anything outside himself. His holiness 
is his utterly unique, divine, transcendent, pure essence. It determines all that he is and does and is determined by no one. His holiness is what he is as God, which no one is or ever will be besides God. So the holiness of God that Isaiah sees, this is not something that's new news in Israel. In the ages before Isaiah was born, when God was setting a people apart for himself, God had already borne witness to his own holiness and his own sovereign authority when he told the Israelites, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. That's Leviticus 11. As we consider Isaiah's vision of the Lord, it's very important that we understand that the vision is not metaphorical. It is real. Like what he sees happening is not like a, an idea. God shows him his glory. Calvin says that one of the things that we learn from this vision is that God does not amuse us by unmeaning shapes. That So we can be sure that what Isaiah has is a clear sign of God's presence. The sovereign authoritative God who Isaiah sees is the king of the whole universe. There on his throne is a sovereign God who rules and reigns at all times, in all places, and there is no place where God does not rule. Isaiah receives here, and we along with him, an exalted view of God rooted in his majesty and holiness as it is revealed in biblical reality. It's good for us to consider that the God of Isaiah is our God, our Father, seated on a throne. As we sing the hymn of praise, Behold our God, Behold our King, nothing can compare. Come, let us adore Him. We would do well just to meditate on that reality. It could be done. But um, we are going to talk more about Isaiah. But this is our God. When we look at that scripture in Isaiah 6, and he has made himself known to us in scripture, in his grace and his power in our lives, and in his work in the church, in creation. And these are just glimpses of his glory. Isaiah didn't see God because he was a seer. Isaiah just didn't decide he was going to see God. He saw God because God revealed himself to him for a purpose. Isaiah sees the world for, the mo- for a moment as it really is, under God's authority, an authority that has no peer on earth or in, in the universe. There are no other sovereigns like Yahweh. And we know how Isaiah responds to seeing the Lord, seeing, seeing God seated on the throne, attended by the seraphim who proclaim his holiness. In grace, God gives Isaiah a vision of his sovereign glory, and he leads Isaiah to a confession of his own sin, or his own uncleanness, and he purifies Isaiah through the cleansing coal. And Isaiah feels his lostness before that, that coal, the angel brings the coal to his lips. There are no works and no human effort that Isaiah could have done to make himself ready to be in God's appearance, in God's holy presence. He feels his own ruination. He feels his, he says, I'm undone. He understands that he has no righteousness before God. He knows 
that he's unclean, and so are the people that he lives among. He has this understanding because his eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts, whose holiness is so separate and so other, and just we're the same way. We're full of sinfulness. It is the grace and kindness of God that leads Isaiah to confess this uncleanness. Scripture confirms this over and over, that a person's understanding of who they are in relation to God comes from God's grace. Isaiah's acknowledgement of who he is comes from God's grace. The angel coming with the coal, that is God's grace. So let's consider the purpose of the call. Isaiah hears the voice of God. In Isaiah's call, we can tend to focus on Isaiah's role in it and his response to the sovereign voice of God when he says, when God says, who shall go for us and who shall we send? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. His responsiveness is important because it's divine grace that he responds to God. But he did not will himself to be willing. That willingness, his self-denial in going and preaching that hard word, that's God's grace. Not because Isaiah was a good person. In the context of the call, it's vitally important that we recognize that the emphasis is not on Isaiah. It's on the divine word of God. God's word to the people is his purpose for commissioning Isaiah. Through Isaiah, God proclaims that the covenantal relationship is going to collapse because of the disobedience of the people. When God gave his law, he made it very clear that there are blessings with obedience and curses with disobedience. With both Israel and Judah, sin had enormous repercussions in the lives of the kings and the lives of the people. And ultimately, the Lord is saying, your time is up. Listen to Alec Motier's translation of the Lord's message to Isaiah. Go and say to this people, hear and hear again and do not discern, and see and see again and do not know. Make this people's heart unperceptive and their ears insensitive and glue their eyes shut, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and discern with their heart and turn back and one heal them. We have to recognize that God's stance is not sudden irritation with, with these people. Um, it's his righteous response to their wickedness that had gone on and on and on. There's a shift in God, from God calling Judah my people to this, this people over here. They were rebellious children who had hardened their hearts. The prophecy is not just a foretelling of the Jews pending captivity in Babylon, It speaks of their current condition in the year that King Uzziah died. The people's hearts were hardened by sin and their eyes were blinded. And so the mission that God gave Isaiah was profound, to be a witness for God and against Judah, to bring that warning of divine accusation. God sends Isaiah to foretell Judah's ruin. How long, Isaiah asks, and God says, until the destruction comes. In scripture, when God calls people to serve him, we know, and off, you know, even today, when God calls people into ministry, it is often attended with great difficulties. One commentator notes that when God commissioned Isaiah as a prophet, he commissioned him to have a rather, humanly speaking, unsuccessful ministry of the word of God. 
very successful from God's standpoint, but unsuccessful as far as outward results and numbers are concerned. The important thing for Isaiah and his calling is his faithfulness to God. By fulfilling his prophetic ministry, declare this word, God tells him, and Isaiah was obedient to that. He did that. The results of that word that God gave him to give and the effect that 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 word would have in the world, that was not Isaiah's responsibility. That was God's and completely in God's hands. God's judgment, which Isaiah is going to prophesy is coming, it's fearful for people who don't submit to him. But for those who do, there's refuge. There's refuge in that kind of power. We can see that God is merciful because he's sending warnings through prophets. He's urging people to repentance. In Isaiah 2, remember, it says, Oh, house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. God is calling people to repentance, to turn away from their idols on earth and in their hearts. There's going to be a remnant that is saved. So even in that hard word that Isaiah is sent to give, there's hope and mercy. Out of the stump that will be the remnant of Israel, out of a tree that looks dead and dry, there's going to come a holy seed. Not all of Israel is going to be lost. Some are going to be destined to live. There would be a remnant chosen according to God's grace that would be called and saved amidst all the blindness, darkness, and destruction that would ultimately come, the destruction would come upon Judah. But out of that, there's this remnant. In 2 Kings 24, when Nebuchadnezzar carries away all Jerusalem and the officials, the mighty men of valor, the craftsmen and the smiths, we are told that Israel's remnant is the poorest of the people in the land. Through that remnant, we know, will come the Messiah. God shows that he will keep his covenant with Abraham. God promised that through Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed because Abraham obeyed God's direction when he told him to go and sacrifice Isaac. We will see that God's covenant keeping unfolds as we work through Isaiah. When salvation comes, it does not come through kings or smart people or talented people or strong people. It comes through what looked like refuse. Hundreds of years later, the Apostle Paul would confirm the chosen nature of the remnant when he said in his letter to the Romans, so too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. The beautiful truth of Isaiah 6.13 is that the holy seed is its stump. It's, it's filled with the promise of a king. It's Jesus, who, as we studied in Hebrews, we know he's now crowned with honor. He's crowned with glory. And Isaiah got a glimpse of that glory. That glory is going to be our reality when we're with the Lord. So let's consider our Lord on the throne of grace. I want you to think about how God sits on a throne that we can't see. We can get glimpses of it in Ezekiel 1, Daniel 7, Revelation 4. But you don't have to have a vision like Isaiah to worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. The Psalms give us manifold reasons to rejoice in who God is. 
But for you know, if you're an, a person who likes images, it may be helpful to go to Ezekiel, to go to Revelation, to go to Daniel, and look at those descriptions of God's throne. In Ezekiel's vision, he says, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And my heart loves that. It just, like, oh. just to imagine how beautiful that is. And it's not about having riches. It's about the Lord is more beautiful in his glory than we can even imagine. Um, a couple of years ago, a woman who is from a faith that is hostile to Christianity came knocking on the door of the church. And she was only around for a short while, but I, I met with her for coffee once, and the Lord had given her dreams that were a part of her conversion, and she wept. And she described how she's so beautiful. And it just that's our God. So those images are helpful to me. In Hebrews 4, which we studied last year, God's throne is described as a throne of grace. And it's a place where we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. I also want us to think about things that make you say, woe is me, I am undone. When you stand in relation to God. None of our hearts are naturally disposed towards God. We don't naturally want him. We want our own kingdoms. This was true in Isaiah's time. It was true in the time that Jesus lived in. We know that in the Gospels, Jesus quoted this this prophetic passage from Isaiah 6, talking about his own ministry among the Jews. And in our time, though, you will often hear testaments to the goodness of people, despite evidence to the contrary, Um, It's true that our human hearts want their own sovereignty. Um, A couple weeks ago, I heard the apologist Ravi Zacharias say something that really resonated with me. He said, we are not bad people trying to be good. The problem really is that we're dead people who can only be made alive by Jesus Christ. He did not come into this world to make bad people good. He came into this world to make dead people live. That promise is there in Isaiah 6. God pronounced condemnation for the people who are disobedient. But God, we know that God can open the eyes. He can open the ears. He can make hearts discern that he is sovereign. And he can make people turn in repentance and heal them. Because of the grace that we have in Jesus, we don't have to despair when we have those woe is me moments. One of the things that... um, I have to repent over and over again is that I don't love God like I'm supposed to. I don't love him as I ought. And I'm not talking about what other people think. I'm talking about what scripture says. I don't love God the way that I'm supposed to. All of life is this endeavor. We know this to to know the Lord, to know his word, to know him through his word, through prayer, through the church, through fellowship in the body of Christ. And Until we die, we're going to have to work on cultivating a right understanding of who he is. He's a sovereign king over everything. He knows the times. He knows the people. He knows the places. He knows our beginnings. He knows our ends. He knows that we're as frail as dust. We can rejoice in this because we also know him as a father. Because of that holy seed who came through that cut-off stump of Israel. So it's, like, how are we going to cultivate that proper understanding? It's, 
it's helpful to have pra- practical ways that we can work towards having a proper understanding of the Holy God. And please understand as I share this that I do not think these are five easy steps to holy- understanding God's holiness. Um, I'm just going to stick to number one for a while for myself and meditate on it. So this advice comes from John Flavel, but it's got Saunders' paraphrase and some annotation in there as well. Um, so, so Flavel says, one, remember the place where you are is the place of his feet. Remember the place where you are is the place of his feet. So you remember the angels say, the whole earth is filled with his glory. And in the Psalms, he says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. But this is the place of God's feet. You have to remind yourself of this, that especially when you look around at the kingdoms of this world, that our God is so big and we don't even comprehend that. We do. When I remember that song when you're a kid, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. It just came to mind. Um, number two. Act in faith according to the omnisciency and omnipotence of God. Act in faith according to the omnisciency and omnipotence of God. Which the omniscient, um, omnisciency is that God knows everything. And the omnipotence is that he has all the power. One of the sermons that I listened to um, in thinking about Isaiah 6 draws this lesson from that vision that Isaiah had. He said, the speaker said, behind all of this chaos, there is God. Number three, realize God's infinite holiness. Flavel asks us to ponder, into what serious and composed frame did the sight of God in his holiness put the spirit of Isaiah? Isaiah realized that he was lost apart from God. He realized God's infinite holiness. Number four. Labor to get in your heart due apprehension of the greatness of God. Labor to get in your heart due apprehension of the greatness of God. Or you could say uh, proper understanding. Of the greatness of God. And Flavel uses Abraham as an example. He's when I think this is in this section where Abraham and God are talking about what's going to happen to Lot's city. And Abraham says, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. So he could see, I'm dust and ashes, the Lord is great. And five. Remember the jealousy of the Lord in regard to his worship. When, I'll repeat that. Remember the jealousy of God in regard to his worship. Aaron's sons, Aaron, Moses' brother, had offered fire to the altar that God had not commanded them to offer. This is Flavel's illustration for understanding God's jealousy about his worship. So these two men offer this fire. God consumes them with fire because he hadn't told them to do that. So then Moses says to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. 
Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So God has spoken. What he does is right. So finally, this is not Flavel. This is just my exhortation to you. Remember that the Holy Spirit dwells within you. He is the agent of grace in our lives. He inhabits scripture. He inhabits the praises of his people. And he lives in our hearts. So to have that proper understanding of God, we we can rely on the Holy Spirit. that He's going to teach us. And for that, we can be very grateful. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we had today here. We thank you that the Holy Spirit is the agent of grace in our lives, that he opens our eyes, he opens our ears. And Lord, I pray that you would go with us today as we continue in our study of Isaiah. We thank you for the freedom that you've given us to do this. And I pray that you can continue to change our hearts, make us like Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.